welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. It's a bit earlier than when I did it last time, but 2021 is starting to wrap up and the holiday season is now in full swing. For Trek Untold, that means it's time for our end of the year wrap up. And if you're new here, that adds up to two episodes filled with some of my favorite moments with guests from the last 12 months. Looking back on it, I still really can't believe how this year went. I got to spend an hour with Jonathan Frakes, an hour with Gates McFadden, and even longer with Walter Koenig. Plus so many other amazing performers who I admire, and behind-the-scenes crew who I never knew that much about before. And that's not really much of a humble brag, it's just the honest truth. 2021 has been a wild ride, and I want to keep that momentum going forward in the new year. And speaking of, I do have some big plans for 2022 that we're going to talk about next week. But for now, let's just say that things are already busy here on the bridge, and I will definitely need the extra time to work on more episodes. But I'm not going to waste any more time speaking about that for this week, so let me go ahead and run the usual spiel that I say on every episode, and then let's get right into it. Before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you about the different ways that you can support Trek Untold. If you're in a position to help us financially, we have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support us for as little as $2 a month. Joining on higher levels allows you to have early access to the latest episodes, knowing in advance who our guests will be before anybody else finds out, or even the chance to submit questions to some of those future guests, and maybe your question might be heard on that episode. Shout out to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, who create 3D printed toys and prop replicas inspired by Star Trek. Their items come in all shapes and all sizes and are always amazing, but you're going to hear a little bit more about them later on in the show. But most importantly, I need you to leave a review and rating on iTunes or wherever you're listening to Trek Untold. Five-star ratings and positive reviews help this show pop up when new listeners search for Star Trek Podcasts and make sure that they know they're listening to something that is worth their time. If you're watching this episode in video format on YouTube, please leave a thumbs up, share the video, and of course, comment there as well. Interacting on all these platforms is a guaranteed way to spread the word about Trek Untold. So if you've been a fan of this show, please do take action in whatever way you can and help make sure that Trek Untold can reach more listeners just like you who are going to love this type of content. And don't forget to follow us on our social media pages, which includes Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. All you need to do is type in at Trek Untold on any of those platforms, search for us that way, and you will find us just like that. You can also watch the video version of this episode on our YouTube channel, which you can subscribe to at youtube.com slash nerdnews today. The video versions are released on Sundays, so the audio version will always come first, but if you prefer watching it, that's the way to do it. We also do a lot of other Trek-related content there, including toy and book reviews and plenty of other stuff, so you might want to take a look too, just so you can indulge and get yourself a new daily dose of Trek nerddom, however way you like to get it. Kicking us off on this first best of of 2021, let's start with who my first guest was for the year, in fact, and that was the incredibly talented Duncan Regeer. Duncan has played two characters in Star Trek history, the latter a recurring character on Deep Space Nine named Shakar, but his first role was from the infamous TNG episode Sub Rosa. There, he played the one and only sex candle ghost, Ronan. Duncan has some great memories about his time in that episode, and here's a small clip of that interview to whet your appetite for more of his ghost stories. As we mentioned, and as anyone who's seen the episode knows, you spend most of your time on screen with Gates McFadden as Beverly Crusher. Right. Uh, so, you know, you already said some nice things about her, but what else do you remember about acting with her? And uh, especially in this case, in this episode, her character is acting very much out of character. Right. Um, well, most of the stuff was fairly romantic. And, you know, it's the stuff of, you know, bodice rippers and that kind of thing. So it was it was lovely. And she kind of understood that. It's, it's an, an interesting thing when you meet people who are very familiar with the theater, as she is. 
And uh, there's a sort of an instant acceptance and camaraderie that exists, like a bonding where we're of the same creed or whatever. And uh, so that was there for sure from the very, very get-go. Um, likewise with Patrick, you know. You can... Was there any inspiration from other famous characters in movies or anything else that you pulled from to play the sex scandal ghost? I'm just going to keep calling him sex scandal ghost. I can't call him Ronan. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know it was called that for the for the longest time, and then somebody else pointed it out to me. And uh, but I think it's a great title. Um, fairly and, accurate uh, too. Fairly accurate, and I and I think uh, I, I love the notion that the episode is both you know kind of affectionately lauded and and critically derided in a way as well. It's it gives it an air of notoriety. But um, yeah, uh, I didn't base it on anything in particular just sort of went with what the script is and had an understanding of a sort of a Byron-esque type of character, which is more about poetry than an actual character. Uh, that was where I came from with it. When you put it that perspective, it does kind of make sense because he is, you know, he is a classical bad guy character, but right. he's also very lyrical and there is something yeah. kind of magnetic and charismatic about the character. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So when you guys are filming the scenes where your ghost essence is doing your thing to Beverly Crusher, uh, do you remember any off-camera reaction to Gates having her various reactions, let's just say? <laughs> I do remember one instance uh, where she was kind of writhing around the bed, writhing around on the bed, having all these feelings, and, and suddenly she she got into this very peculiar position where her rear end was right into the camera lens. <laughs> I think it was Jonathan Frakes who said, you know, something to the effect of, you know, uh, no, you don't want it, Gates. No, maybe not that way. Maybe not that way. Roll the other way. I have an affinity for stunts, and really, who doesn't? But when I say that, I mean I used to spend my weekly allowance at Blockbuster instead of on school lunches, where I bought movies. And a lot of the times, they were martial arts films from Jackie Chan, Sammo Hung, or whoever I found that did awesome fight scenes. Speaking with stunt coordinator Dennis Matalone earlier this year was a great experience for me, since he really pulled back the curtain on how a lot of things got done during his time working as the coordinator on TNG, DS9, and Voyager. This was a really in-depth interview, and here is a clip from the episode where Dennis talks about some of the roughest stunts he had to do on a Trek show. So, for yourself personally, what was the most intense stunt you ever did on a Star Trek show? Um, I think one of the coolest ones was in the beginning, season one, and it was uh, Heart of Glory, um, where it was toward the end of the episode, <clears throat> and the Klingons shot two security guards. Uh, and then one Klingon <clears throat> went to the, um, into the ship and did the, got shot by Worf and fell through the engine room through one floor down through another and hit the bottom floor. And uh, Rob Bowman was directing that one. And so I got to play the Starfleet guy at noon that got shot, you know, and ate the ground. And then they put me into makeup. And then that night at 11 PM, I doubled the Klingon getting shot and fell through the floor and through the like two floors to, and bottomed out. And that gag, uh, just to do those two stunts in the same day, Starfleet and be a Klingon was impossible. 
And yet I was the coordinator and the performer. So when you really look at that, that's pretty iconic that I was able to play a normal human and then the same day. So that never happened again. But to do that particular stunt was really tricky. To be able to fall through breakaway glass, head and chest first, and go all the way down and not, you know, and not get hurt. Because it was on the border. I wouldn't ask my people to do it. But it was on the border of what I thought we could do. And uh, so that was pretty cool. I just saw that episode and I recorded that particular moment because it was, uh, it was uh, I remember coming, I had a little pad down below like six inches, but I remember all the breakaway glass. I landed so flat and ate it that the glass I was pulling out of my face, it was because I had to land on everything. <clears throat> and and the, and I remember pieces uh, stuck into my side. I had like scratches and stuff, but that was part of the game. And I just remember going, wow, man, that was, I almost tweaked my back because I really came down and never twisted and just ate it. And uh, so I was pretty proud of that. And I think um, I was already on the show, but I think that helped, you know, you know, me with my amazing run that I had for 14 years over there with all, you know, one thing about Star Trek is <clears throat> the journey on the show, it, it was so much fun, but it was really after the show uh, to uh, be able to know that you have many friends out there. And when you bump into them, like I just bumped into Nana last year at the M Emmy Awards. Uh, no, it was at um, a, a screening of the Deep Space Nine what we leave behind that Ira Bear put together. I saw her there and I probably haven't seen her for gosh, uh, 15 years. And so when you see somebody and you haven't seen them for 15 years and you see how happy they are to see you and they see how happy you are to see them. That was pretty cool. And I think that's it is that we have so much excitement together. So only you see them 10 or 15 years later and they're as happy as if it was, you know, your brother and sister. And so, and, and that's how it was that day at that screening, seeing the, everybody, I were there and just seeing everyone for the first time in all those years, all the actors. And, and uh, it, so that's the thing that is cool was that you really fall in love with the people you work with, uh, with a deep friendship that is always there. And suddenly it rekindles when you see them years later, or maybe, talk to him on the phone. So, and that's the journey, you know, and that's you too. Uh, everyone you get to see and meet, I mean, they're, it's, it's an amazing journey and, and hopefully you keep that friendship going throughout your life. There's one stuff I want to talk about, which is from D space nine. I think it's from, uh, if wishes were horses or I, I can't remember the exact name, but the episode is where you get set on fire. And for folks watching uh, the video version of this podcast, uh, you'll see a picture. And, uh, was that, is that actually from the DS nine episode? Yeah, you see it? That's uh, that's me on fire on that episode. Please tell us about that because you know I, I don't don't get to talk to enough stunt people on this show here, and uh, you know I never get to hear about what it's like to be set on fire. So, uh, what can you tell us about doing a stunt like that? That fire game was amazing because it's the first time we really did fire on the show, and so I brought in my my great buddy Tim Torella, who is amazing with fire, a uh, great stunt coordinator, great friend, and so one thing when you're dealing with fire if you make a mistake you're burnt for life so you can't mess with fire so i always have tim and they, you know they we we took our starfleet uniform 
and we soaked it in uh, fireproof solution. And he, he comes on with his magical gel to put, you know, if I have skin shown to put gel on that so my hands don't get burnt. I remember putting a fake Starfleet face on. And uh, and then uh, I didn't do an air tank. Normally you do an air tank and just breathe and you have an air. I decided just to be in a hose, which is a hose running out of your suit. And then right before they light me, I'll and I'll get rid of the hose. They'll tuck in the headpiece and they light me. And but I remember doing that gag. I remember I could barely see. And I had to hold my breath and run down the hallway and be on fire. And uh that was pretty cool. That was just doing a full burn on Star Trek. You normally don't get to do 100-foot high falls or car chases, right? And you don't really get to do fire gags. So it was pretty cool to pull off a full burn and, and, uh, and do that. So that was, uh, that was a cool moment for me. Raven Dowda is a total comic book nerd. And as we discovered on the show, that's in fact where her name originated from. And I also found out that she is absolutely the type of person I would be hanging out with all the time if we were friends. Raven plays Dr. Pollard on Star Trek Discovery, a tough role to jump into for a number of reasons, especially when you consider when her character joined the crew. Raven told me about the unique audition process for a new Trek show, what it was like doing her first scene ever with Doug Jones, which is pretty scary, and how she grew into the character to make it her own. So Raven, let's beam into our Star Trek discussion. And of course, you are Dr. Tracy Pollard on Star Trek Discovery. So, you know, the one thing we've learned from doing this show with so many different guests who've been on Disco is that uh, they don't usually know they're auditioning for Disco. So uh, can you kind of tell us what was your audition process like for the show? You know, um, yeah, because they have code names and everything. So you don't necessarily know. But when I auditioned for them, I did know because my agent was like, it's code name this but it's really Star Trek and um, very secretive. And, and there was something that was so exciting about that. Like there was something that was so cool about like you get the sides, what they call the audition material, but it's like on a time sensitive thing link. And then once you get that, then it, it disappears. Like this message will self destruct, you know, and you can't copy it in any way. It's all protected and encrypted and all that shit. So it's just like, so amazing um because you see how you're a part of something that is so much bigger than you um so I knew going in I first auditioned for though because I auditioned a few times um I think the first time I auditioned was for a Klingon ambassador like one of the yeah I think I'm drawing a blank then the second time, I think, was one of, not one of the bridge crew. I'm drawing a blank now. Isn't that something? But the third time is when I auditioned was for Dr. Pollard. The cool thing was, like, everything was disguised. Like, you don't know. You just, you're, you're, a, you're reading um, a part, and there are other characters, obviously, in the scene. But I didn't know that it was, like, Saru or who. Like, you don't know. It's all very, very cloak and dagger um and I found that quite liberating because then at the end of the day I made it about who's in the scene what is my role as doctor and then I endowed them the others in the scene with backstory as to how important they are to me so it it you just do your homework as an actor and you lift it up off the page 
Um, and so without the added pressure of knowing exactly, like if I had known, oh my goodness, this is, you know, Burnham and this is Saru, if I'd known that those were the people, um, I think it would have choked me up a bit. I think it would have just gotten into my head and mind effed me, you know, like, so I, I hats off to how they're doing it because they're respecting obviously their own, you know, intellectual property and all that. Um, but also it's, it kind of makes it easy for us to just go in and do our work. Um, and like I said, I auditioned for them once or twice before. So they, they know, they know who people are. And I have a feeling I would like to think anyways, that when I first auditioned, they were like, Hmm, she was pretty good. Let's think about her for later. Let's maybe come back. And uh, I'm so honored that they did. Like, it's just, it's really cool. Yeah. And when I got it, I didn't, I didn't actually, I couldn't believe it. I, I think <laughs> I, I had an out of body experience and I, I floated around somewhere and, and then it's like, you have the best news in the world and you can't tell anybody. Like, I was like, I don't, what do I do with this? Am I going to like blow up? Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's so your first episode was a little bit late into season one, because essentially you are uh, replacing Colbrooks. He's off the network, whatever we're dead at that point. Um, and so your first appearance uh, chronologically in the show is vaulting ambition. And it's right after that happens. So basically your first scene, I, I'm assuming you filmed it chronologically, but your first scene is with a screaming Shazad Latif and Doug Jones as Saru and all that Kelpian makeup. That's got to be a heck of a way to get welcomed onto the show. It was so intense. First of all, I was geeking out because like you look down on the floor and you see the insignia and you're just like, oh my God, I'm, I'm here in sick bay. Like I was just freaking out. I was freaking out. I'm not going to lie. I, I was trying to be present in my body, but I was freaking out. And, um, and then so you practice a certain way at home, you know, like I practice my lines and what is what is it that I'm doing and all that stuff. You break down the beats like as an actor, you you're a little detective and you're combing through the scene and just you figure out what's the best way to support the script and move the story along. Anyways, when I got there, though, with everything going on, the lights, because I can practice on my own and my lines and all that stuff. But then when you get there on set and you have these big lights and cameras are moving, big, fancy, expensive cameras are moving, capturing stuff. And then you have these incredible actors screaming on the table. It's loud. There's stuff going on. It was very discombobulating. It was, I was like, holy shit. And Dougie, Doug Jones is, everybody's wonderful. And Doug Jones holds a special place in my heart because he was like my guardian angel, and especially those first few days because I didn't know. And I just held on to him for dear life with the thing. And he was like, it's okay, because you didn't practice it like this in your, your room, did you? I was like, no, I did not know it would be like this. Um, and it was overwhelming, but gosh, everybody's such a team player that, yeah, after the initial shock of it wore off, oh, I was welcomed, I was welcomed with open arms and just felt like part of the team. And yeah, yeah, just went at it. It was, it was awesome. It was so awesome. Now, in your first appearances in Disco, the personality of Dr. Pollard doesn't really get to shine through as much as it does in, like, season three, especially. Like, like I'm thinking of uh, the episode uh, Sukal, which is where uh, David Ajal walks in and he takes grudge from Sinequa, oh, yeah. and he's all into grudge more than he's looking at Sinequa. And you're giving him such side-eye, like that, that face right there. That's the face you're giving him, basically. That's the face that I get. That's Pollard's face, okay? It's almost... I want it to become her resting face, where she just gives side-eye, <laughs> and she's just like... She's like, you should not be doing this. You, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like, rest, 
Go get some rest, okay? <laughs> Where did this voice come from? Was this something that was kind of written into the show? Did they tell you to act like this? Or did you kind of discover your own Dr. Pollard along I, the way? I discover along the way, you know? Um, and it's it's that's the joy of um, having characters that grow, you know? Like, we see over the, the years, we're seeing, you know, from season one to two, how the bridge crew is coming together, how the characters are just evolving. Like we see it. And so more and more of their personality comes out. So yes, for me, that was just a natural, that just kind of came out because it seemed to really fit. Um, also fun fact, side note, I had no, met David Ajala in Falling Water. So there was a show that was done here in Toronto some years before, not that long ago before. Um, and we didn't have any scenes together in that show, but we knew of each other. And uh, so, yeah, so there's already maybe a little bit of rapport built in so that I felt that way. And seeing him here and with the cat, with grudge and everything, it just naturally was the natural reaction to give uh, his character. So, yeah, yeah, really cool. It was a perfect reaction, too. I love that scene. Just, oh, my God, so much attitude, so much sass right there. <laughs> Body language, nailed it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Harvey Jason is one of those actors who can say he did it all, and I love interviewing folks like that. His resume is enormous, and he had the opportunity to do some great shows and work with some truly outstanding people. Harvey's time in Trek came on the very first season of TNG in the first real holodeck episode called The Big Goodbye. There, he played Felix Leach in an episode where he spent a lot of time with another great at the screen, Lawrence Tierney. Here is a little bit about what Harvey remembered from his time shooting on that episode and working with, as he calls him, Larry. And I'm pretty sure if somebody like me ever called him Larry, I'd probably get my teeth knocked out. Take it away, Harvey. Harvey, let's talk about your Star Trek The Next Generation appearances. It's your first time in the franchise. You were in the episode The Big Goodbye from the very first season. And you played Felix yeah. Leach. This episode is basically Star Trek's uh, love letter, if you will, to the Big Sleep, the Maltese Falcon, and film noir movies in general. Uh, can you tell us uh, how you got cast for that role? You know, I don't even, I don't remember how I got cast. I think I just got a call. You know, I just uh, got a call saying, you know, you've got an offer to do to do this. And basically, it's sort of a Peter Lorre, Sydney Green Street kind of thing, you know. So, um I said, yeah, I, I would, I would like to do it. So I, I did it, and um, it was Pat's first season. I do remember that at that time I was quite friendly. Pat and I got quite friendly, and I, I some somebody had contacted me about. Um, they said, you're, you're English. Do you have people in England that you telephone? I said, yeah, yeah. He said, because I have a deal where I can get you very, very cheap phone calls to England. So I said, oh, that's very good. So I signed up with this guy and I was talking to Pat. Pat said, I have very little money and so forth. I said, I got a great deal for you then. I said, this guy contacted me and I can get you a cheap deal for phone calls to London. He said, oh, yes, yeah, sign me up, sign me up. So I gave him the guy's number and he and he came the next day. He said, this is great. He said, these are really cheap calls. This is wonderful. It turned out, I think I heard like a year or so later, that the guy was arrested for fraud. It was an entirely illegal thing. I had no idea, you know, I had no idea what it was, nor did Patrick Stewart for that matter. But he was thrilled, you know, he was thrilled. So was I. So I went in to do this thing and, um, you know, as I say, it was a takeoff. It was um, Sydney Green Street and Peter Lorre. And the guy, um, what's his name? You'll tell me the name of the guy I played with. Um, um, uh, Lawrence Tierney? 
Yeah, Larry Tierney. So Larry Tierney was a very, may he rest in peace, was a very difficult guy. I've heard that. And he would invariably blow lines and then he'd blame it on a technician. He'd he'd say, well, I was the fucking light. Turn the light away. I couldn't think of the line because of the light. And he always blamed somebody else, you know, but he, he had a lot of trouble, a troubled line. He was, and you didn't want to cross him. He was a really tough guy. I mean, he would lose his temper. He was a, he, he was a great presence. I liked him. I liked him a lot. And he was, but he was a terrific presence, on, you know, on set and on screen. And when he was younger, he had done some wonderful work. He'd done a lot of really good work, but we had a very good time. I don't know if he had a good time. I had a great time on that show. I had a, I'm not sure what he did whether he did. I don't think he did. But I had a wonderful time. The, they were nice, you know, and everybody was amenable. And um, it was fun. It was a fun episode to do. And then uh, did you see the plate? Yeah, you have the plate right there with you. Very nice. <laughs> and in fact, a funny thing, about a year or so ago, about a, about, a, about a year and a half ago, Seth MacFarlane came into the shop to buy some, some books. And um in, in our office area of the shop, there are various clippings and personal things. And um, one, the, the plate was there. And suddenly he comes in and he says, oh, my God, you're Felix Leach. I said, what? You're Felix Leach. Said, He's a huge Star Trek fan, which I didn't know. So this character you played, Felix Leach, uh, as you mentioned, he's very much like Joe Egypt from uh, Maltese Falcon. Uh, but this yeah. really wasn't actually your first time doing a Peter Lorre type character. I mean, you did that as well in uh, Bring Him Back Alive, right? Yes, I do. Yes, yes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. We patterned it after him. Well, I loved Peter Lorre. I loved Peter Lorre. You know, he was, um, he had a damn good career and he was an insecure guy. But I, I loved watching Peter Lorre. He had a great screen presence. You know, and, and he and Sidney Greenstreet always played off each other very, very well. Yeah, and I think you and Lawrence also had that kind of same chemistry on camera too, very much the Sydney Green Street and the Peter Laurie type. Not much to look too, but he was, you know, he's a he's a very good actor. He was a very very good actor, and and had a, a decent career. We, I think we worked well together. I mean, I liked him, you know, and 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 we we did we we I think I had a very good time. I don't know whether he did, but but I enjoyed working with him. It was a nice show to do. It was a very nice show to do. I had very little to do with all the other people, really. I like the guy, um, Dana. Yeah, that's uh, Brett Spiner. Yeah, I liked him. I liked him. I had very little to do with anybody else, really, I think. But I liked him. And for someone who has, at this point, worked so much already doing so many different television shows, did you feel that this show, Star Trek Next Generation, had any legs to actually stand on? Did you think it was going to go far or was it going to be maybe just a one and done, that's it? First of all, I I thought it deserved to be very successful. The people were very dedicated. The crew was very dedicated. I remember the crew was really um, enjoying it all. And when you've got a happy crew, that's that's 90 percent uh, towards success. So everybody, everybody was was very enthusiastic. Do you remember that? And that doesn't often happen with the show where it shows where people just get tired and, you know, they just they just walk it through the bases. But people I remember vividly, everybody was very excited and enthusiastic about about Star Trek, about this. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. 
Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. Ranging from prop replicas to use in a fan film or cosplay, to accessories or playsets for figures in all different sizes, Triple Fiction Productions has got you covered. Past pieces for toys have included large centerpieces like 10 Forward from the Enterprise D, shuttlecrafts complete with working lights, and the Voyager Bridge, with smaller pieces including Borg alcoves, the Genesis device, and the dreaded arch enemy of Worf, barrels. All highly detailed products are 3D printed and hand painted in the USA, with new items added all the time, while simultaneously improving their printing quality based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit triple-fictionproductions.net or visit them on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Want to get 10% off your next purchase? Use code UNTOLD10 at checkout to receive this discount. Not applicable during sales or clearance events. That's code UNTOLD10 to get 10% off action figure dioramas, accessories, and prop replicas. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hi, I'm Armin Schimmelman. And I'm Kitty Swink. 17 years ago, I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. I didn't know it at the time, but I had a 4% chance of surviving five years. As her husband, I was very scared. But he never let me see that. You are a rock. Thank you. Thank you. Pancreatic cancer is the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States, with a five-year survival rate of just 10%. We want it to be much higher. Much higher. It's 6% better when I was diagnosed, but not high enough. More than 60,000 Americans are estimated to be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2021, and more than 48,000 will die from the disease. Because symptoms are often vague, it can be hard to detect. Like the rest of the world, the Star Trek universe has been struck repeatedly by pancreatic cancer. Not only those of us that work on the show, but our fans around the world as well. It is why we came together with so many others to work with the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, the leading patient advocates committed to fighting the world's toughest cancer. PanCan is working hard to create better outcomes for this devastating disease through its groundbreaking research and early detection and better treatment options. PanCan drives progress by funding life-saving research, providing personalized patient services, and creating a community of supporters and volunteers who will stop at nothing to create a world in which all pancreatic cancer patients will thrive. You can help support their important mission by donating at pancan.org today. We donated. Won't you do so too? Please, make it so. We now return to Trek Untold. De Young had three excellent roles in Star Trek history. First as Hannah Bates in the TNG episode The Masterpiece Society, later as the enigmatic Orissa from the DS9 episode A Simple Investigation, and finally as another mysterious lady from the Enterprise episode Two Days and Two Nights. But it was her DS9 appearance that was her favorite among all the roles she did in the franchise, and Day had a lot to say about working with Renée Auberjonois in this part that she is still very proud of to this day. So we go from Hannah Bates to Arissa in Deep Space Nine in the episode A Simple Investigation, which is quite a change in the characters you've been playing here, because Hannah is kind of a lot more bubbly in some ways. Serious episode, but Hannah's a little bit more bright and cheerful. Arissa is a very mysterious, enigmatic character. This is very reminiscent of like a film noir style movie in a lot of ways. Uh, what did you think about the character of Arissa? You know, I think back on that 
experience and playing that role, it is one of my favorite in all my career. Just everything gelled. It was, um, first of all, uh, working with Renee and uh, the director, John, um, was amazing. He was a wonderful director and he encouraged the chemistry that um, Odo and Arissa had. And I think that's what really gelled in this. And um, it was a love story. And I literally fell in love with Odo during this time. And, you know, it was, um, yes, I was supposed to be mysterious and all of that. But the bottom line of this whole episode is the love that they have for each other, the connection. And then finding out at the end that, that she's someone else that she didn't even know about and that, and that she has to, you know, she has to go back to her husband uh, when she loves this Odo, you know, when she's fallen in love, it was, I I loved the experience. I loved working again. It was an experience that um, touched my heart and I will remember forever. And it was probably one of my best experiences, acting experiences. And that director for that episode, by the way, was John Kretschmer. John Kretschmer, thank you. Oh, and you know, I, I I'm still in contact with him via email, and uh, I just he was wonderful to work with. Very specific in what he wanted. I had a challenge on that um, because they have to move fast on these episodes, and so I had a number of scenes in Odo's office. And so what they would do, and it was the first experience I'd ever had in my career where they would, out of order, you would do all my coverage coming at me in, in, in like five different seats. So it wouldn't even complete the scene. And then we would do Odo's coverage all, you know, scene two, nine, 11, all from his, that angle. So we were out of, you know, it wasn't in no sense of continuity. So you really had to be on your game and aware of how it was being, you know, where you were in the scene and all of that. So one scene earlier on that I would have done um, where I'm supposed to be, you know, maybe very mysterious and cold and aloof in the beginning of the scene, in, in, in the beginning of the episode, you know, we're doing from this angle. And then I have to go to a scene later on where I'm professing, you know, uh, you know, the more intimate scene and come to my room and things like, you know, it's all of a sudden like, and it's the next scene. And, and then I have to go back to, and be in on his, you know, on the other side for him and going through it all again. Are you following me about how they would shoot a lot? Yeah, that, that sounds <laughs> I like don't a know nightmare. If I'm any sense, but it is, um, it was the first time I had ever done that. I've had to go on and do it since then. It's not a way I love to work, but I'm, I'm willing to work anyway, because, you know, there, there's the continuity of, of really creating a scene and being there and being in character and then having to change your character and then have to go back to your character to be there for the other actor. So it was um, a challenge. And on top of that, I've heard that typically on Star Trek shows, you don't really get rehearsal time. You're kind of just thrust right into it, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't even know if we had rehearsals at all. <laughs> but, you know, that is the graciousness of the um, the cast that was on every single one of the shows. Um, 
especially the first two that I worked on, which was Next Generation and uh, Deep Space Nine, was that they were old pros. They had been doing it for so long and uh, they were welcoming and they, they brought you in and they kind of took you under their wing and you felt a part of it. And, and, and they brought you in and, and to do the best job because they knew one of the, the beautiful things about all of this, this franchise was the guest stars had the most amazing roles. They really had amazing, meaningful roles. And that was, uh, that has never been the same. I mean, not been my experience on other shows since then that uh, where they really give the great roles to the to the guest stars, you know, in many ways. And that's totally why I do this show to make sure I get those stories told because they are I pretty know. great. Yeah, they really are. So, of course, we mentioned plenty about Rene already. He's one of my favorite actors in all of Star Trek. And Odo is, I think, oh. my favorite character ever in Trek. He gave me a parting gift. I mean, he was, we had such a connection. And I mean, I, I, I literally, I fell in love with him. He was just an amazing human being. And, uh, uh, it was a gift uh, that was given to me. I, I mean, the gift of working with him was really such a generous actor and a human being. Well, I've got to ask, because you were the first person, I believe, to actually kiss Odo on the lips. So <laughs> how the heck did you find his lips is what I want to know. <laughs> they were wonderful lips. <laughs> Let me tell you. Now, um, <laughs> that was, you know, that was a real, um, you know, I think the beauty of it all was, um, well, I didn't have any, as you know, Arissa uh, until she, until the very end, um, doesn't have any kind of, I, I mean, I play, I didn't have any, what is it called? Prosthetics. Prosthetics. Thank you. I had nothing. I had myself and that was Arissa. And she, um, so he was, could easily find me, you know, but um you know, it's all in the eyes, you know? And so it was really, I mean, Renee's eyes really came through, uh, his, his, his prosthetics. And, um, so it just all was so natural. It was seamless. It just was such a natural thing. It was a beautiful love story and everything was flowed easy with the exception of, as I, as I said, how they would film it, you know, but the, the bed scene, we had a bed scene. Yeah. Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, you were the first person to ever sleep with Odo on the show. What is that like? I loved that. I loved that. It was fantastic. It was, I felt so honored uh, to be able to get into his bed. <laughs> um, it was, I heard, by the way, Renee had to actually shave his chest for that scene, too. Is that true? Do you remember that? <laughs> yes, yes, I think so. I think he had to. I think it was like, you know, I, I think I lay in his arms. I mean... Oh God, it was just, it was so, it again, it was one of those fantastic experiences. And it was the, the chemistry that we had, I think. It was um, a beautiful, loving chemistry. And, um, and I especially liked her because she goes through such growth and change and she has a real arc in the, in the, in the episode. Um, and uh, and it's very heartfelt throughout the whole thing. You know, she might start out very mysterious and, you know, all of that. And and she's on a mission. And but but by the end, you you really know who she is. So I don't know if you're aware, Dave, but there's actually now uh, 
basically you're part of a Star Trek meme. <laughs> so someone found a few weeks ago a uh, trading card from the Deep Space Nine trading card series, and it's a card of you and Odo in bed together. No! And, and it's well, shirtless Odo, it's you in bed. I've got a pretty woman meme, but I didn't know about that. Can you send it to me? I will send it to you. You're now a Star Trek okay, meme. My phone number. Oh my God, that is fantastic. I love it. And it's us in bed? It is you guys in bed together. You two are cuddling. Renee is on top of you. It is too hot for TV. Oh no, you're kidding. I love it. Oh my gosh, that is fantastic. Thank you, Matthew, for letting me know. My gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember if Arissa was ever talked about to return to the series? Well... No, because unfortunately she has a husband and she, and she really had a whole different persona on who she was. And she had been, I think, hijacked and put, had a, had something, uh, something put inside of her in her brain, um, where she was sent out to be a spy and, and, uh, but it wasn't who she was. So she goes back to, and I'm just going to absolutely embarrass myself on this show. But what is it that I become again at the end? One of those. Um, oh, I don't remember the exact thing. We'll, we'll just say you went back to your home planet. Make it easy. <laughs> yes. Thank you. And, and, and one of their aliens. And uh, it was a very popular one. It was beautiful. And it had the little forehead here. And I, oh gosh, I, I felt, I felt more beautiful as that alien than, than as Arissa. But, um, uh, and the wardrobe was beautiful. Oh, anyway, that is one of my favorite scenes is going and saying goodbye to him at the very end. I mean, it was, it makes me cry even today. It was such a heartfelt um, goodbye because I think it was like one of the last episodes with Renee too. Great very, very good episode. Obviously you can tell it made such an impact for me. Yeah, I can definitely tell. John Putch has a long history in television and film, and these days spends his time in the director's seat. So he truly has a very unique perspective on the entire industry. His most famous Trek roles would be Mordok and Mendon from Star Trek TNG, where he was the first and second Benzite ever in Star Trek history. That's a big story that I recommend you check out the full episode here, but really the story I enjoyed the most was from his time on Star Trek Generations. There he played a reporter on the Enterprise B alongside one of his friends in the industry, where he had some less-than-stellar memories of William Shatner. And, well, there's one thing we like to talk about on the show. It's less-than-stellar memories of William Shatner. So, take it away, Putch. So you have one last appearance in the Star Trek franchise, and that is in Star Trek Generations. You're a reporter. Uh, in fact, you're the one who stands behind Captain Kirk for a lot of it. You're also following around Scotty here and there. Uh, I just watched it, in fact, and I was, like, screenshotting all the times you appear on screen. Uh, so, yeah, tell us about Star Trek Generations, because that's, that's pretty crazy, too. It, it go from basically the TV show to the movie and just how many more extras they shoved into that scene in particular. It's just, like, yeah. so much going on in that one scene. Well, I had, I had a couple scenes. Uh, I had one in the later, and I don't know if it was cut out. I think some of it was cut out. But Junie Lowry Johnson, who cast the TV show, wanted to bring all of the guest actors back and put them in the small parts in, in the movie. Because clearly they're aware of the fan base and the history, and they like you know they're good they're they're good about that, and they want to bring this you know these people back. She begged me to do the little part of the you know the guy with the camera on his head, the reporter, and my buddy Tommy Hinckley, who played the guy with the sound, the microphone. He was my we were there together a lot. He was on some start uh, uh, next generation shows as well, so. 
So me and Tommy, and we knew each other for years. We, we were basketball buddies. Um, we, we were on the bridge for that opening sequence, you know, when Shatner was there and Scotty and Walter and, you know, check off and Scotty and, and Shatner, uh, and Alan Ruck. What was great for me was I, I, I didn't have to be talked into it. I just, you know, wanted to, I wanted to be in it and see what was going on. I wanted to get in the building. Basically it was pretty amazing. It was like three or four days on the bridge. Uh, it might, it might've turned into five. And, uh, aside from all the, you know, they must've had, I don't know, 35 extras that were just extras. And then there was me and Tommy cause we had dialogue. And then there were a few other people that had dialogue and, you know, they just, you know, we were, we were pushed into the crowd and then you had, you know, Shatner, you know, who walks in, you know, with basically a force field of ego. But what was amazing about it was it was, I think it was the first movie since the original movies, you know, the, the features that came out, I, I think it was the f- first series where, you know, he appeared, he's going to appear in another one as a guest. So he walks onto the stage, you know, and all the extras start applauding him. Okay. So he's already got, he's already got his audience basically. And everybody stopped and, and he like said hello and everything. And then he, of course he said, well, it's good to be on the enterprise again. And of course it was looked completely different. And, uh, so he start, we start working with him and, um, <laughs> he, he had just written his book, um, you know, his, his memoir, the Star Trek memoir. And, uh, and you know, every, he's, He's not well liked by by his cast members, according to the book. And uh, and and James Doohan, uh did not like him that day or that week, and neither did Walter. And what was and I knew this because I had read the book, and I could tell they're they're no, they're not talking to him, they're not hugging him, they're not shaking his hand, they're literally just you know like like this. And I'm going, wow, it's been it's like thirty years, okay, since they originally did the the original show, and like I'm looking at him and the. And there they are. There's those three Titans. And these two clearly hate that guy. And he has no idea. Or he's just being, you know, himself, which is just so fun to watch. Oblivious, pompous guy. You know, and he'd done a bunch of television at that point. There's so many good stories about him. So every day, uh, I would just, like, try to memorize and record everything he did. And I would run home and tell my wife about it and call my sister and anybody would listen. I go, you're not gonna believe what happened today. So, uh, the one, one day, like if you see this, uh, behind me, there's the turbo lift right there. Well, there was one of those on the set and the, the scene called for the three of them to walk onto the bridge for the first time you know, before takeoff and Alan Ruck says, welcome aboard and la la la, you know, and he goes and sits down. So, uh, you know, those doors get opened and shut by a, a person. And uh, so the doors open, you know, they go, okay, rolling and they get, you know, and they have to go in there, the three of them. And I like, I'm elbowing Tommy. I go, those guys hate him. And they're going to have to go in that little booth and close the door until action is called. And, and there was a bunch of dialogue before the doors open. So, you know, there's Alan Rux doing his bit and they're covering that. And then like, I'm not 10 seconds into the scene you know, the door opens and the three of them walk in and then they do, you know, they go do their scene, their greeting and all that stuff. And right before, you know, the take started, I would, I was, Tommy and I were constantly looking into this uh, door that, you know, they were in and, and Walter was like this against the wall 
and and Jim Jimmy Dewan was like was like this, and uh, Shatner was you know he was you know well this is kind of fun and you know you know it's uh it's kind of different to be here again you know they're not they're not even answering the doors close, and then action is called and they're in there for you know they're baking together. I just wanted to be inside. That's all. I wanted to know what was being going on in there. So <clears throat> that that stuff happened all all week, and um, then I had a, I had to do stuff with him. You know, I had I had literally had a scene with him. I talked to his character, but he treated me like an extra. So he 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 thought I was you know. And of course, he has no idea that I'd been on a million television shows at that time. I was a working actor. You know, he didn't, he didn't know any of this stuff. But he treated he treated me like an extra, which is really I was you know mildly annoyed but i was also like i i just was thinking i can't wait to tell everybody this this is the best thing ever <laughs> william shatter captain kirk he's he thinks i'm a, a bit extra guy there's a scene where he has to like cast me aside you know get that out of my face you know because i'm constantly doing this you know to bug him with the camera because i'm the camera shooting guy and tommy's down there sticking the mic in his face and uh <laughs> he we do it. We do a rehearsal, and he literally throws me into a light stand. He he he, he literally just the guys goes, get that out of there. I'm not kidding. I was we were up on a platform, and I'm I stumble back, and I almost knock over you know a baby par light or something, or you know, and or and and I literally I went up I went up to him after I go, hey Bill, I called him Bill because I I refused to say Mr. Shatner. I said. Listen, just put your hand on me. Let me do the work, okay? Because you almost just, I almost knocked the lamp over just now. He would not look at me. He like looked to the director and go, um, how can we make this work? And I'm literally, and, and I'm literally going, I just told you how we can make it work. Um, let me do the all the work. Just give me the motion of the hand. Isn't that what we do? Anyway, it was it was infuriating. So the rest of the week, he was like, he would not talk to me. He would not acknowledge me. It was, it was the best thing ever. And then at the end, at the end, when he finished, he's, uh, you know, everyone stops and applauds. Ladies and gentlemen, that's William Shatner's last scene in the show. We want to thank him. And, you know, and everybody's down in the little circle that the one like I'm sitting in now. And, uh, you know, and he's up on the, you know, he's up on the, you know, the rail there. And, uh, He's, you know, thank you. And, th you know, there's all this thing. And, like, everybody's out there applauding. A sea of people applauding. This is me. That's what I was doing. <laughs> it was just eyeballing the guy. It was fantastic. He didn't even see me, probably. But um, there was a, just stuff like that happened every day. And then one, one there was a scene in the sh movie where... Um, he stands at the director's, the director's, he stands at the, the captain's chair with Alan Ruck and he, he, you know, they have an exchange and, and Alan Ruck asks him to go take his seat and he doesn't, and he, you know, he doesn't sit in the, in the captain's chair on the enterprise. He has to go sit along the rail, you know, with the rest of them. And uh, so they did that scene and everything. And like uh, 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 the next day, we're setting up to do a whole different scene. There's a crane hanging out in the middle of the set. There's like all this shit is doing. And, and I was sitting down in, you know, this little pit area with Tommy. And I, I listened to Shatner say to David Carson, I think we missed something yesterday. 
and like I'm immediately I'm, I'm elbowing Tommy. I'm going, what's he going to say? He's what's he going to do? And uh, he uh, he said, um, I think we need to do the scene at the captain's chair again. I think I missed something. And David, who's British guy, goes, Oh, really? Well, um, what 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 should what should we miss? He goes, Well, I really think I should have taken a moment with the captain's chair before. Before, before I, uh, you know, before I release it and go, and um, me, I'm sitting there thinking, oh my god, he's going to make us reshoot. We're going to be here forever. I'm going to get more overtime. This is fantastic. So, and David Carson said, yes, all right, I think we can work that in today. So, during the day, at some point, we set up to do that shot again, and. I don't think you can see my can you see my chair in this shot. Yeah. Okay. So I gotta get down here. Okay. See the chair. So he he they do the scene like this. I'm bent down because I'll I'll disappear if I stand up. Okay. So he does the scene again, and right before he leaves, this is all he did. He wanted to reshoot because he wanted to fondle the chair. So you'll see him touch the chair like this, like that, and look forlornly at it and then he goes off and takes a seat and that's i mean that must have taken three hours to do i can literally tell you i was just re-watching the movie and watching that part and i was like it's like he really did go out of his way to touch the chair so i'm glad there actually is a story behind it because he it seems like he really wanted to do something with that chair that's amazing that you picked up on that because i never told you that story till now no, I've never heard it before. I just, I just noticed like the way he did it. It seemed extra. It seemed so unnecessary. It, there, yep. there would have been such a more subtle way to do it, but it's Shatner, so no. Pretty hammy. It's pretty hammy. And then, and then, uh, you know, there was like an uh, an explosion thing, and we all had to do the Shatner, as they say, you know, where we all had to pretend to like shift, and the camera dutched, and he was right over my shoulder on one of these, you know, where the railing is, you know, on the set. He was, uh, he was, he was, you know, and he did his usual, you know, and like, da-da, you know, and he'd like grab onto the railing. Well, the railing broke free, and William Shatner flew over me and Tommy's head and fell right down in front of us. And like everybody goes, oh, you know, and he, he, he you know, he, he rolls, he goes, I'm all right, I'm all right, you know, and he got up, and everybody was like, oh my God, what happened? What happened? And, you know, the, he, he, he broke the set <laughs> doing, doing his own, his own bit with the t- thing. So, Oh my God, that was like a whole, that was two hours right there. <laughs> two hours. He went to the medic. Nothing's wrong. You know, there, everyone's around him. And then meanwhile, the grips are with screw guns, chains, you know, hacksaws. They were like attaching that rail, like within an inch of its life. It, there's nothing was going to move it, but a wrecking ball at that point. Two hours. That was a good one. But it, I'd tell you, and every day that would, something like that would happen. And I would go home and I go to my wife, you're not going to believe what happened today. And I'd call anybody who was a Star Trek fan. I'd call them, tell them that story, those stories. And it's uh, so, so fun. So fun. Noah Averback Katz rapidly became a fan favorite on the third season of Star Trek Discovery, where he played the Andorian named Rin. A lifelong Trekkie who had some actual tales of going to conventions as a kid told us that being a part of Star Trek was like a dream come true for him. And in this clip from that episode, we learned about the process to become this character and some behind-the-scenes stories from the earliest appearance of Rin in the series. 
So when did you discover that uh, Rin would be a recurring role? And more importantly, uh, when did you find out the ultimate fate of Rin? Yeah, you know, I made a decision pretty early on to not really get too involved in what was coming or what was happening because one way or another, whether it's one episode or 50 episodes, you know, he comes to an end at some point. And I knew that if I had in my head, this is going to come to an end at this point, I would be so distracted and disappointed that I wouldn't actually be able to do the job that I wanted to do and focus on how things focus on the acting and, and it being exciting and having fun. You know, in that first episode, I, uh, you know, I read it and he's running and then he gets beamed up. And then in the end, he's on sick base. So I'm like, well, I'm definitely coming back for one more. You know, that's I'm definitely coming back for one more. And then in the in the next episode, uh, or maybe it was actually in that same one or whatever, uh, you know, in the call sheet, you basically have like a list. A, a call sheet is like, you know, basically everyone who cast crew who is involved but the, the the whole cast is essentially listed and given a number so that way when you're doing uh you know scene six you have number three number four and number one and a lot of the time you know not that there's like a re- the, a perfect system but generally you know the most important people are given the highest numbers and as you go down you know the there are less of important people uh, given given the higher numbers. Um, and I think I knew I was going to die when I was number 45, 46, which is fine. Uh, but I realized I was going to die when grudge was number 22. And I was like, oh, no, if this cat is higher than me, if this bastard cat is is a higher number than me then there's no way i'm sticking around longer than a couple of episodes so uh so i i knew it was coming which which gave me some peace you know i really really got to soak in every moment that i was there i wasn't sort of on my toes tense about waiting for you know the bad news so when it finally did come it was like oh yeah well i knew this was coming and you 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 know star trek well enough where you're like you know who's gonna make it or not you know, one way or another, you know, whether or not they're dead or they go off in another ship, you know, to another quadrant, you know, when somebody's going to make it. And I was like, this guy, he's not going to make it. <laughs> but he had a great time while he was doing it. And, and to be fair, you know, Grudge is a queen. So it's not surprising she would get top billing. Yeah, it's it, it's uh, yeah, I, I understood. You know, I, I wasn't too angry at it, uh, but it was very clear to me, you know, where the priorities lay. So there you go. One of the things that I picked up about his character kind of reminded me of Armin Shimmerman's portrayal of Quark. And that's how he always has these very sympathetic eyes. And I always felt like Rin had the same kind of sympathetic eyes. So I'm kind of wondering, at what point did you become conscious of how the makeup was on you? And how did that help you ultimately develop the personality of Rin? That's such a good question. And anytime I can be compared to Armin, I'll take that <laughs> as a massive compliment. So thank you. You know, that that's uh, totally spot on, you know. Really early on when I was working with David uh, in the first episode, I, you know, it, it was like, well, what, you know, I don't know what to do in this thing. I, I don't know how to get this to work. And just uh, like in the first few scenes of watching David, he's such a talented uh, performer and actor. And it was very strange. I'd be like, I'd be on set with him and he'd do something. I'd be like, what? And then I go over to the the playback and, and watch the scene back. And it was like exploding off the screen. And I was like, how the hell did you do that? Like, what is this? What's going on here? I need to figure out how to do that because like it is, it is 
totally happening in this amazing way. You know, David has these really large eyes and it's not that they're, you know, of course they're expressive, but he really is focused on communicating a huge amount of story just uh, with those subtle eye movements where he's looking, what he's, you know, just, just being there and you can just really see into his eyes. And I thought, well, why don't I try that? I don't really have much else to work with here. So like, what if I just try doing that and going back and watching playback, it was, it just was immediately starting to click for me. What's, what's challenging is that it's great to, you know, use body language and use big facial movements, but you know, that that's can be really useful. as like a Klingon who has these big moments. But when you're playing somebody with a real challenge, you know, you're playing somebody who is beaten down, who has to remain quiet, who feels small and contained and like they are have been, you know, put into this very small box. Um, it's a real challenge because you can't, you know, have a big, you know, big thing, arm movement, whatever to kind of convey that story. So so I really tried to focus on, you know, just trying to convey the sort of emotional story through the eyes, not try and worry about manipulating the mask too much and just let the mask sort of tell the story of his struggle or his, you know, what he's been through, this sort of battle wearied person that he is. Um, and so I just just tried to really focus on telling that story through the eyes uh, and, um, it was, you know, it's just a really interesting acting exercise, you know, to have things taken away from you, um, and really be forced to simplify. It's a, it's just a really, really interesting exercise to get to do. I, I really, really enjoyed it. And yeah, you know, it, it's funny because even the eyes have, have these really thick contacts in them as well. So it's, you know, there is something even still where it's like really, you know, where do I look? When do I look? You know, because even the, the 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 eye movements around the side of the eyes where the dilation of the pupils isn't there. So it was it just really, you know, even even with those contacts, they're so blue and so vibrant that you just project a story onto them. And so, you know, the sort of hope was let me do a little bit of work and see if the audience can kind of meet me halfway and fill in the rest of the story. Earlier in this best of episode, we heard from Day Young, who was one of the guest stars in the TNG episode, The Masterpiece Society. Well, this year, I spoke to another actor who also did that episode, the prolific Mr. Ron Canada. Ron was Martin Benbeck in that episode, but he also has two other Trek appearances to his name, aside from another enormous resume that has to be seen to be believed. Ron also played the Malon named Fessick in the Voyager episode Juggernaut, but my favorite role of Ron's was as a Klingon lawyer named Chipak from the Deep Space Nine episode Rules of Engagement. This episode was very interesting for a number of reasons, and I'm going to let Ron go ahead and tell you why this one really stands out to him among not just his time in Trek, but in television history as a whole. I thought in particular this episode, your scenes with Avery, you know, you're talking about listening and reacting and responding. Uh, Avery seemed like an amazing scene partner for you to work with. And something I've noticed with him uh, when we talked to other guests who got to do scenes with him is he very much feeds off having an adversarial counterpart. Uh, which Chipak yes, very much yes. provides. He, he liked he liked that very much. I think it got it got him um, engaged <laughs> uh, at, at at that point in the, in the series. Um, I think 
you know, I, I think um, what I, I was able to bring something to that episode that uh, engaged um, uh, Avery and engaged Michael um, uh, in, 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 in a particular in a particular way, or at least uh, there were some people around the production, I remember, who who commented uh, in that regard. Um, um, and and I, I like to think, you know, I, as I said, uh, my job as a character actor is to create texture around the money, the stars. But I also um, want to bring stimulation to them and I want to challenge them. Um, because usually more often than not, sometimes you're an ally of the star, but more often, or the regular, the series regular, you're, or I get brought in to pose a problem, an obstacle, and you can't have a strong character in, in a drama if they don't have, if they're not overcoming a dimensional obstacle. And um, Chapak is the personification of obstacle for, for Captain Sisko and for Worf. And so the more dimensional I could make that, or in any role, in, in, in any of the, 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 the shows I, I, I appear in, or films I appear in, the more that actor gets to bloom. Acting together is it, it's it's a group activity. It's not a it's not a solo activity. I mean, I know there are people who don't like one man shows. I've never wanted to do one. They have no interest. It's like playing playing with another good musician. Um, you know, they stimulate you. And I'd like to think at this point that I I'm a good enough musician so that I stimulate uh, my scene partners and we get a good back and forth going a good, you know, that I hit the ball over the net hard enough so that, so to speak, or with enough spin so that they have to engage their skills to get it back across the net, uh, if I can use that sports metaphor. Yeah, I mean, I imagine you probably don't spend your days watching Star Trek Deep Space Nine like I do, but I can tell you no, just I from... <laughs> I can tell you from watching, you know, other episodes uh, of guests I've spoken to, uh, you know, Caitlin Hopkins comes to mind because she did an episode where she was again similar kind of uh, adversarial character to Avery. I felt like he was like he really brought his A game to this episode, and you guys played off each other yes. so well. Like I feel like, and that's kind of a topic I want to talk about too. This episode is, um, you know, we mentioned earlier this is Lavar Burton directed this one, and the stars of this episode. This is a Michael Dorn centric episode with Avery Brooks as his support and Ron yes. Canada as the advocate going against him. This is basically like, I'm trying to find like the best way to say it, but this is basically like a black run episode with black characters as the stars. And I feel like that really kind of brought together something different that we don't normally see on Deep Space Nine. Uh, yes. Or see on any other television show. <laughs> really? Uh, when, in, in, in my career, it's not something, you know, it, it's funny for us three uh, African-American uh, male actors, mature male actors to be on screen together was a rare occurrence. Uh, I can remember doing an episode of, of, of Seventh Heaven with uh, Keith. Um, oh, God. Keith David. Keith David. Yes. Keith David and, and, and uh, Mr. Collins. And uh, we're the, the, the three of us uh, together. And uh, Keith and I laughing, saying to, to, to Stephen, man, you're participating in something rare. The two of us on screen together at the same time. 
this is a, a rare thing. And it is, in fact, the one and only time you will ever see Ron Canada and Keith David, who are contemporaneous, who are uh, friendly uh, colleagues and whose career are, uh, careers are um, contemporaneous almost completely. That's the only time you'll ever see us on screen together. Uh, so for me and Avery and Michael to to be there, I, I call it also the the duel of the 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 the, uh, the episode of the dueling bassos, you know, because <laughs> you have three three kind of big voices, three guys who are kind of known for their voices uh, going at each other. Although I was a little handicapped by the teeth, uh, uh, but um, yeah, it was it was it was special for that regard. And again, it was under the guidance of Lavar who is a man of such intelligence and dignity and a director of such skill and uh, preparation and confidence and uh, enjoyed so much uh, confidence from the crew, you, something you could feel uh, that they loved going to war with this guy. And um, he had the respect of Avery and, 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 uh, and Michael. Uh, my impression of DS9 was that the camaraderie was not the same as what I talked about in SNG, but there was certainly um, uh, respect um, all, all around. And um, LeVar is just, a, is just a leader. He's as, um, he's as good, maybe um, the best director of television that it's ever been my um, pleasure to work with. I, I think I know, given my film career, a little bit about directors, in ter especially in terms of their interactions with actors. And, uh, you know, I have worked with Robert Reiner and William Friedkin and a couple other people like that. In my mind, LeVar is as good as anybody. He has my gratitude for that performance as well, for helping me and guiding me and supporting me. Thoroughly. Can you describe a little bit about what his directing style is like? Confidence and relaxation. The two things that make good acting, he displays as a director. And you learn from, I direct some stage myself, and you like to think you learn from every good director that you ever have. And LeVar just exudes confidence on the set and um it is it is contagious um he and he, he also his preparation is complete and total he's not a director who's always looking at his script he's not looking at uh he's not looking at anything except watching you you know he, he he's not glued to video village um there's never any sense of tension or panic. He he has this this um, residing calm, which in that res respect he's like John Sayles, uh, the great film director. He is just serene. Um, he 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 gives off an aura, or at, at least in my that week of working with him of. He couldn't, there's nowhere else he'd want to be except right where he is. And how we're going to get this done 
because we're us and how could we fail, you know? And people, he just creates an atmosphere where everyone is respected and where, where you can tell the crew knows that they are respected and regarded and they want to please him. And there's an efficiency because he is prepared, which is the thing that actors and I think crew people will tell you they most want from a director that they that he or she be prepared and to know that text in and out, up and down. And you also, he also has the advantage of having, being a fine actor. And I'm sorry, uh, in my experience, the best directors have always been people who have acted themselves. They have the most useful information to convey and know how to convey it. And they know what not to say and how not to get in your, in, in, in your way. Um, I can say that about Kevin Hooks. Uh, I can say it again about Rob Reiner um, as, as, as directors who are actors who stand out in my mind and uh, who I've admired in my career. But LeVar, top of the list, top, top of the list for me. And I looked at that performance today and I thanked him again. And I thought about what a superlative uh, director he was. And finally, for this week's Best of 2021, let's revisit my interview with Jonathan Frakes. And I got to remind you guys, this was easily the most nervous I had ever been for an episode of Trek Untold. But Frakes couldn't have been kinder, and we had a great time chatting about the way that he directs, how he learned to direct, and of course, plenty of really great Star Trek stories. One of the episodes I really felt compelled to ask him about was the TNG episode, The Outcast, which guest starred Melinda Kulea, someone hopefully will get on the show one day too. The Outcast is an episode that still has a lot of social relevance today. And discussing that one with Frakes, it kind of turned into a larger story that ultimately led us down a path about talking about the relationship that Riker had with Deanna Troy. Let's take a listen. So I just wanted to pick your brain a little bit about another episode, which uh, you didn't direct this one. This is one that you were very important in, though. That's The Outcast. Uh, I just rewatched this one again. Uh, another beautiful episode I completely kind of forgot about. And uh, it's an interesting one, too, because it's kind of like we're looking at early 90s progressivism here for LGBT topics. Uh, yeah. And I was surprised how well it aged. I mean, again, this is coming from uh, a straight white cis dude here. But uh, for the most part, I'd say it ages pretty well. Some things, maybe not as much. But overall, it's for what it is. It, it holds up in today's modern lens. I'd love to hear a little bit about working on that episode, because that's such an interesting and topical one, too. It was a wonderfully topical episode, and it was right in Roddenberry's wheelhouse of how he likes to tell stories allegorically and using the time of the future as to relate on or to comment on what's going on in the present. And the opportunity was there to cast uh, a man in, in, as the part of, of the outcast instead of an androgynous woman so that it, it just seemed to me that if they're if they're going to tell the story, which I think was a great LGBT story, would you not have cast? Certainly, if you did it now, you'd cast a man in that part, right? That's one of the criticisms I see today, uh, looking at it from the modern perspective, is that everybody's saying it would have been so much more amazing to show the androgyny with male actors because, for the most part, that alien race, the Janai, it was predominantly females playing those characters. Ridiculous. Yeah. Where was that? The early nineties. Yeah, definitely. Early. I think it was season five that was from. So yeah, it's it's pretty uh, pretty hot topic considering the time it was coming from too. Yeah, and now we have on uh, Discovery, we have Anthony Rapp and Wilson Cruz 
who are both gay icons, are ma- married to each other on the show. And it's then they're, they're fantastic representatives. And we have Blue and Ian, who identify, they, they are playing characters who are what they are. And it's, it's, a, it's, and this is a credit to Michelle Paradise and to Alex Kurtzman, who have made an effort to do it the right way, if you will. Yeah, the times have definitely changed and things have definitely gotten better. So it's great to see that representation. Yeah. Uh, but I'm kind of curious now about the character of Riker here. Understanding today what we know more about sexuality, what do you think Riker's affiliation would have been? Especially looking at this episode that we're talking about right now. You know, do you believe that Riker was straight? Was he bi? Would he have been omnisexual? What would you have labeled him? Riker always felt straight to me. I mean, he had a healthy respect for uh, alien women. And I don't know what that, how you would describe that. Certainly, he knew how to serve on the Klingon ship. But uh, his heart was always with Troy. One of the things that Marina and I take great pride in is that, if you recall in the pilot, part of the story they tell is that Riker and Marina, a Riker and Troy, had served together, uh, were in love, and shared empathic thoughts that Riker somehow not only her her betazoid qualities were maintained through the show, but there was a scene, I believe, where Riker knew what she thought or felt what she felt. And, and you could tell that even though they had made a decision that we're serving together, so we'll, our relationship will be not at the forefront. And then eventually, because the writers wanted, I'm assuming this as well, the writers wanted to free Troy up to have affairs with uh, alien guest stars, if you will. And Riker, the same way, Riker went sort of the, without the same degree that Kirk did, but had the sort of alien lover in every port kind of vibe or a couple times a season. But Marina and I consciously and talked about it on a regular basis, insisted that we still loved each other. Our characters still loved each other. And that, that that would inform, you know, how actors, actors often as part of their technique have a secret as part of what they use for their character. While this wasn't a secret, this was part of what my acting teacher used to call our packing. We used to, uh, that was packed in, in both Marina and Jonathan's approach to Troy and Riker. So that in a scene, if we, our characters would look at each other occasionally and it would relate to that, to our relationship and not necessarily to the scene or how our relationship was affected by the scene or how our relationship could influence the scene. And, and I think, and I could be completely egomaniacal about this, but I, I believe that that worked and kept our relationship alive subconsciously, perhaps in the writer's minds. And then you flash forward to Nemesis where we, they thought, Oh, wouldn't it be a great idea if these two characters got married <laughs> So that's all the snippets we're going to play for you guys for this week, but make sure you come back next week to hear part two of the best of Trek Untold from 2021. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Trek Untold, which is just one word in all those platforms. If you're listening to this on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or any of those other locations, please leave a positive review and a five-star rating if you can to help show other listeners how much you like this podcast and spread the word. 
If you're watching this on YouTube, please like the video, leave a comment, and subscribe to our channel at youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday. If you're enjoying Trek Untold and in a position to financially support the show, I hope you consider being one of our Patreon supporters by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can help us out for as low as $2 a month and get some pretty sweet perks. Shout out once again to Triple Fiction Productions, who you can check out at triple-fictionproductions.net. If you're a collector of Star Trek toys in any size or scale or enjoy prop replicas, you're going to love the quality of their 3D printed products, and I'm sure you will be a repeat customer. If you have any comments, feedback, or suggestions for future guests, send an email to me at trekuntold at gmail.com. I hope you'll beam up again with us next week for another episode of Trek Untold. So until then, I'm Matthew. Thanks for listening. And remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the RageWorks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.